Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Greg L. Fraser. Greg's a professor of history and political studies at the Masters University, Santa Clarita, California. We're going to be talking to Greg about his new book today, a book called God Against the Revolution, The Loyalist Clergy's Case Against the American Revolution. It's just been published by the University Press of Kansas in their American Political Thought series in 2018. Greg, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Before we chat about the book, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, as you mentioned, I teach at the Master's University. This is my 32nd year teaching at the Master's University. I started when I was five. (laughs) Um, Not really. Um, And before that, I taught uh, high school. I uh, for 10 years um my uh I have a PhD from uh, Claremont Graduate University in political theory and American politics and uh political theory is my particular love and my particular interest in my area of uh, research uh but I teach a lot of different uh courses at the Masters University uh in the area of politics and history. Uh, I'm married, and I have three grown daughters and one grandson. Very good. Congratulations. Um, Tell us a little bit about the background to this book, Greg. I must say, handling this book is a pleasure. It's beautifully designed. I think it's one of the most attractive history books I've probably ever seen. Um, Tell us, what was the background to this book? How did you come to this particular subject? Well, Um, I wrote a previous book um, called The Religious Beliefs of America's Founders, and in uh, writing that book, uh, I dealt with not all every American founder, obviously, but with the eight what I call key founders, the most influential of the American founders and their religious beliefs. And in doing the research, um, I came to believe that uh, they shared a lot of religious views with uh, the so-called patriot preachers, the preachers who supported the American Revolution. And um, so I had a chapter on the patriot preachers and the influences on both the patriot preachers and uh, the American founders. And uh, as I was doing that, as I was studying the Patriot preachers, I was also looking at the other side, the, the preachers who were on the other side. And uh, I've always been particularly impressed by one loyalist preacher, a guy by the name of Jonathan Boucher. And um, Boucher is a very interesting individual. He, he's, I think, very, um, he's very sharp. And, uh, and very intelligent. I think he handles the Bible well. And he had, was in the unusual circumstance of being a very close friend of George Washington, 
Um, he, he and Washington were close friends up until the revolution. Uh, and then obviously they, they parted ways concerning the revolution. And ultimately, uh, Boucher wrote a letter to Washington. Uh, Boucher was forced out of America at basically at, uh, by a mob. Um, and he escaped uh, back to England and he wrote a letter to George Washington in which he told him that because of the um, persecution of loyalists and the poor treatment of loyalists, that Washington was no longer worthy of his friendship, um, which is quite a <laughs> quite a statement um, to be making to George Washington. So he was sort of the linchpin between the two. Uh, books that that uh, that got me interested in the loyalist ministers, and so um, I went from there to uh, looking at all of the writings, either sermons or pamphlets, political pamphlets that the loyalist clergymen produced, and uh, that that was the genesis of the book. Now we use words like loyalist or patriot uh, when we talk about this particular. Um, historical phenomenon. How many loyalists or patriots were there as a proportion, perhaps, of the general American population? Yeah, that's a subject of a lot of uh, debate. Um, but if we take John Adams' own assessment, John Adams, of course, uh, the second president of the United States and one of the uh, leaders of the American Revolution, if we take his own estimate, uh, he su suggested that about one-third of Americans favored the revolution, about one-third of Americans opposed the revolution, and about one-third of Americans were neutral and uh, tried not to take either side. So uh, somewhere around one-third of Americans supported the revolution are what we call patriots today, uh, and somewhere around one-third were loyalists. That is, they stayed loyal to the government of England and opposed the revolution. And your book is, in some ways, an exploration of why that was the case. What were the compelling arguments that, that kept them loyal to uh, English government during this period? You have some lovely turns of phrase, Greg, uh, in, in, in your book. One of the ones that jumped out at me was your observation that patriot rhetoric appealed to theory, fear, and John Locke. And um, what was it that made patriot rhetoric so effective? Well, um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a that's another tough question. Uh, really, fundamentally, um, I, I suggest several things that caused the the patriot rhetoric to sort of come out on top in the in the argument. Um, but probably the most important ones is um, the, the Patriots were going for something new, uh, something dynamic. And so their rhetoric was more uh, passionate, more exciting, uh, you know, calling some people to a change, to, to something new, to a, a vision, so to speak, whereas the loyalists were just arguing for the status quo. And that's not nearly as dynamic or exciting. Um, 
And then there were, there were several other, um, the, the Patriots also had advantage because they were better at appealing to the masses, to the common people. Um, they, they were very good propagandists. And, uh, so they were able to appeal to the, the common man, the common people through symbols and rituals and mass rallies and, um, the kinds of things that have always appealed to the masses in, in other, in various contexts. Um, but I argue that the, the primary reason that, that they were, that the patriot rhetoric won out was their aggressive and violent campaign to shut down loyalist thought. Um, they, in fact, um, took patriots took to uh, to burning all of the, the loyalist materials that they could find, whether sermons or pamphlets. Uh, they closed their churches. They denied the ministers, the clergymen access to their pulpits um, and even uh, uh, in, in some cases kicked them out of the colony. Uh, and so there was an active camp, and they also, uh, if, if any uh, printer printed loyalist materials, then they would go in and tear up the shop and destroy his equipment. And so there was a lot of intimidation and um, and just destruction of loyalist materials. So basically, the loyalist argument in terms of sermons and pamphlets mostly dies out uh, late 1775, early 1776, just because they wouldn't allow the argument to be made. And so whether the Patriots could have won the battle of ideas against the loyalists in a fair contest is something we'll never know, but it wasn't a fair contest. They basically shut down loyalist thought and silenced um, the clergyman. Now, it, it just, just as this is debate about politics and about biblical interpretation, the Loyalists and the Patriots were also debating the meaning of the Glorious Revolution, 1688 to 1690, back in Britain, weren't they? There's an historical dimension to what it is that they are debating among themselves. Yes, uh, and uh, some of the Loyalist clergymen uh, were um, adamantly opposed to rebellion or revolution in any context. Um, and, the, and in fact, they often used um, sort of universalist terms when they're talking about it, that this is always wrong, especially when they were interpreting the Bible uh, and uh, key passages such as Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And yet, occasionally, uh, some of them would say, well, but the glorious revolution is exception. Uh, I think that was okay. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, it's kind of strange. But, you know, I'd like to tell you, why, but I can't really, because they never really explain why the Glorious Revolution is okay and why it's an exception. They just some and not all of them do, but but two or three of them uh, make an exception uh, to the rule against rebellion and uh, somehow see the Glorious Revolution as being acceptable. My the only kind of hint or guess that I can make concerning it is that um, ultimately, at the end of it, one monarch was replaced with another monarch, as opposed to overturning the entire system. But it's hard to, it's hard to really tell because they don't explain it. So when we, when we read your book, we're reading about loyalist clergy. What kinds of clergy were these loyalists? In what religious communities were they most likely to be found? 
most of them were Anglicans, that is uh, the American version, if you will, of the Church of England. There were about about 76 percent by my calculation. I calculate there were at least 182 loyalist clergymen in America, and about 138 of them, about 76 percent, were Anglican. Uh, and then, uh, so that's that's about three quarters, and then about one quarters were a mix of others, mostly Congregationalists, about 16 to 21 Congregationalists, and then a smattering of others. So uh, basically about three-fourths Anglicans and about one-fourth others. Uh, my book focuses on five, um, five of the clergymen, the Loyalist clergymen, who are the most prolific in terms of their writings. Uh, so we have the most information from them. And four of them are Anglican and one of them is Congregationalist. So that pretty much matches the, uh, the breakdown of, uh, in terms of denominations among the Loyalists. So and, it, and by the way, I should mention that, that uh, the Loyalists are often caricatured and have been uh, down through the years. Of course, the winners get to write the history, and so the Loyalists were on the losing side, and so they they sort of uh, take short shrift a lot, which is, again, the reason why I wrote the book, because no one's ever really given a comprehensive look at what the Loyalists argued because they lost. But um, they've, they're often caricatured as um, being wealthy, uh, connected somehow to the British government and therefore acting on their own self-interest and uh, also caricatured in a religious sense as all being from the Church of England. Uh, but in fact, that's that's not none of those things is the case. The bulk of the loyalists were were just simply farmers. Uh, and as I as I mentioned, yes, about three fourths of of the clergymen were Anglicans, but about one fourth were not. Hmm. So your book focuses um, very effectively on five clerical voices on the Loyalist side. Obviously, there were 13 colonies that didn't find their ideas persuasive. Uh, how does geography work in your book? Where are the voices that you're most interested in? The, um, of the five, three of them were in New York or, or New Jersey, the, the New York, New Jersey area. One uh, was in Maryland for a time, Virginia in a time, kind of going back and forth between Maryland and Virginia, and one was down in Georgia. So you have um, mostly from the middle colonies, to, to use the historical sense back then, uh, New York and Virginia, Maryland, uh, those are all sort of middle colonies, and then one from the south in Georgia. Uh, there weren't very many loyalists in New England, in the New England area. That was the hotbed of the revolution, both uh, religiously and politically. Uh, so in the, the northern uh, colonies, there, there aren't that many uh, loyalists. They're mostly in the middle colonies and some in the south. Now, let's, let's dive into some of the arguments they were developing. Your book is very clearly structured. Um, in terms of its contents page around various themes. And the first of those big themes is biblical arguments. What kinds of biblical arguments were these clergymen making? Well, they appeal, if, for people who are familiar with the Bible, you would expect them to appeal to Romans 13. 
and in fact they did, appeal to Romans 13 and to 1 Peter 2, um, because those are the clearest passages in the New Testament, arguably, uh, about government and politics, uh, and because they believe that those passages, if you take them at face value, uh, supported their view. Uh, and so they they sort of focused on those passages, but they also sp- spent some time in the Old Testament using Old Testament narratives for examples. Uh, one of the differences between the patriot preachers and the loyalist preachers is both of them would 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 deal with uh, cite Old Testament narratives, but the patriots tended to take uh, the Old Testament uh, narratives and interpret them in support of their position. Uh, the loyalists didn't do that as much. They they would give the actual interpretation of the Old Testament narrative and then say uh, that how it might apply to the circumstances that they were in, uh, but mostly. Um, they spent a lot of time answering um, answering patriot sermons um, and and chiding and criticizing the patriot preachers for essentially bad hermeneutics uh, for interpreting passages of scripture out of context and um, for uh, for example um, the the uh, there are a number of patriot sermons, obviously, that focus on the concept of liberty or freedom. And so you see sermons about Galatians 5.1, for example, um, and uh, other passages that, that reference liberty and freedom. Well, those passages are about spiritual liberty, spiritual freedom. They're about freedom from sin, or in some cases, as in the Galatians passage, freedom of sin plus freedom from the law, from for believers not having to be accountable to the law. None of them are about political freedom, but they were applied as if they were about political freedom. Um, I just presented actually a paper at a conference in Washington, D.C. a week ago, and I did an analysis of a comparison of of sermons. And uh, the Patriot, in this case, um, uh, Jacob Duchesne, uh, is dealing with Galatians 5.1, uh, talking about liberty, and he spends the first nine pages of his sermon explaining what it really, what that passage really means, which is it's about spiritual liberty, it's about spiritual freedom, and he and he spends nine pages doing a really good explication of it, and then on the ninth page he says, now I'm going to go a different direction, and he just switches and applies it all to political freedom for the rest of his 20-some page sermon. So the bulk of the sermon is uh, applying it in a way that he himself admits is not what the passage is talking about. And this is one of the things that really frustrated loyalist preachers. They took passages, they they had what we today would call a, a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic. They they interpreted passages in the historical context according to the original language, the grammar, and taking it literally in the sense of uh, if uh, depending on the genre of the literature, if it was intended to be taken as a metaphor, then you take it as a metaphor. If it was intended to be taken directly, you take it directly, and so on. Uh, whereas the Patriots, uh, their, uh, I argue at least, 
that uh, their hermeneutical method was something that one of the, one of them said, Charles Turner. He said, we must explain the scriptures in a manner friendly to the cause of freedom. Um, and that was the way they interpreted scripture was in a manner uh, friendly to the cause of freedom, as opposed to what the passages are actually talking about. And so the, the loyalist clergymen uh, were very frustrated by that and chided and criticized the patriot preachers for that practice. They believe that if you just took the passages at face value and literally through a proper interpretation that uh, the passages clearly teach that rebellion is wrong. And um, so they got frustrated. Jonathan Boucher, who's my favorite of the loyalist uh, preachers, uh, said that there's not a single passage in the Bible that refers to political freedom. Now, this, this this debate about the relationship between the individual Christian and government, whether hostile or friendly, is obviously a, a, a very well-established debate within Protestantism by the time we come to the middle or later 18th century. Is there anything in any of these biblical arguments developed among the loyalist clergy or indeed among the patriot clergy? Were, were any of their arguments new? Were they simply trotting out ideas that had been worked through over the previous several centuries? Um. Probably, I would say no. There wasn't really anything new uh, other than, um, you know, stark statements such as Boucher's that there's not a single passage in the Bible about political freedom. Uh, As far as I know, nobody's ever really pointed that out before. I I would argue that he's right uh, and that uh, nobody's really ever pointed that out before. Um, But other than that, there's there's um, a few things that are new. Uh, Boucher, for example, spends some time with a very interesting argument. I don't think it holds up in the end myself, but he, he, he spends some time saying, look, if there were ever a case in which under the, the terms that are generally used that, that a, a rebellion or a revolution would be appropriate, if you, if you go through sort of the, the rules that a John Locke or somebody else would lay out for it, or even a, a even a Theodore Beza, um, the rules that they would sort of lay out or qualifications. He he said the one time when it would have been most appropriate would have been Jesus, and he he goes through the fact that uh, Jesus meets all of these qualifications that he could accomplish what he was what needed to be done. You know, he did he had the power, uh, his people were oppressed. Um, so on and so forth, and he goes through the various characteristics of, that are used uh, to justify rebellion, and he said that if there was one case in which that was would have been appropriate, it would have been Jesus, and yet he didn't do it, and why is that? And up to there, I think he's right, but his conclusion is he didn't do it because he didn't want to give the example of rebellion to mankind, but of course I think that he didn't do it because it was God's plan that he be, that he be crucified. Um, which he does also mention, but um, so that that's kind of unique. But uh, other than that, it, they're pretty much um, just kind of uh, recycling arguments that have been made in the past. Uh, the one thing that 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 the loyalists do, however, that is kind of distinct is they they point out that what's missing from the patriot sermons and literature is the notion of suffering. The, the patriots seem to assume that any suggestion of obedience without an option of rebellion has to be a call for unlimited obedience. 
um, as opposed to disobedience and then taking the punishment. Um, they had no concept of suffering unjustly for God's sake as a result of their disobedience. And the, and the loyalists pointed that out, that the, the apostles and Jesus, of course, all suffered, and so have, so have countless martyrs for having to disobey a, a tyrannical or um, a not-friendly government, and that uh, rebellion is not the only other option besides unlimited obedience. Another option is to do what the apostles and Jesus did and what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Christ left us the example to do, which is to suffer. And um, so that's one uh, one sort of nuance that uh, is somewhat new there. But the, the rest of it is, is pretty much recycling. Now, it's interesting, Greg, that you raised this issue of, of suffering there and suffering as a consequence of doing good, because I think one of the things that struck me about your book, the central section of your book, was that the loyalist clergy you profile are not defenders of English government in total. They recognize its failures. They recognize that not everything can be justified that English government was attempting to implement within the colonies. Um, what were some of their concerns about the American situation that might have led them towards this idea that some kind of suffering was necessary. Yeah, I'm really glad that that came out as you were reading it. Um, not all the reviewers have have noted that, but uh, I think it's an, I think it gives them a lot of credibility. They weren't again they they're often caricatured, and part of the caricature is that they were blind apologists for England or that they were. Tories essentially, which they were not, and they would have they would have uh, rejected that uh, title. They weren't blind apologists for England. They recognized that there were that there were problems with what some of the things that Parliament was doing, or I, I shouldn't say they recognized. It was their opinion that um, there were problems with what Parliament was doing. They that almost they all opposed the Stamp Act, for example. Um, and they opposed other pieces of legislation that came down from the parliament. In fact, one of the five uh, loyalist clergymen that I sort of focus on um, was so opposed to these things that he was actually a member of the Continental Congress. Um, he was a, a Whig. He was a he was a patriot, if you will, and a member of the Continental Congress uh, up until. It came to the point of revolution, and that's where he drew the line. And because he wouldn't sign on for that, um, he then had his property confiscate, confiscated. Uh, he went to jail. His property was confiscated, and he ended up escaping and living out in the in the backwoods of uh, South Carolina through the rest of the war, um, having been a member of the Continental Congress just because he wouldn't he wouldn't sell out for. Um, for the rebellion. So they they did have problems with what England was doing and I think that gives them a lot of credibility um, when in in terms of that they're not just uh, a spokesman for England. England isn't just hiring people to propagandize for them and so forth. I, I think they really acted on the basis of conscience and what they believed that uh, that was was right and duty and what the word of God uh, taught. So you your book is structured around these big ideas, biblical arguments, arguments about the nature of government, arguments from law, arguments from current affairs. 
Um, obviously, that, that one-third of actively patriotic uh, American subjects um, were not persuaded by these ideas, and that minority determined the course uh, of the majority. What happened to these loyalist clergy's ideas after the fa that their failure, effectively, um, in the 1770s? Well, most of them were uh, forced out of America. A lot of them went to Canada. Um, a, a goodly number went back to England. Some of them stayed uh, in America afterwards. Um, a couple of them, um, one of them uh, became the first North American bishop of the Anglican Church, um, but up in Canada, not in America, and another one became the first Anglican bishop in America, um, but recognized by the Scottish Church rather uh, branch uh, rather than the uh, the English. But so some of them stayed, but most of them were forced out of the country. Um, and again, the, I would argue that the reason that the one-third who were in favor of rebellion were successful, or a major reason, was actually, it's not very, um, what, it's not very uh, congratulatory, but one of the main reasons that the, that the, the one-third in favor of rebellion were successful was the same reason that the roughly 10% were successful in the Russian Revolution, and that was by force, by intimidation. Um, there was a lot of uh, there were mobs um, and committees, as they were called, which were basically mobs that um, intimidated people and, and in fact wouldn't even allow people to remain neutral. Uh, they, they actually developed devices and tricks to to uncover those who might have unspoken or, or unpublicized loyal, loyalist leanings and. Um, and people were intimidated uh, physically and um, in social pressure and uh, even even locked up uh, in prison, uh, having property confiscated, um, along with physical assaults. Uh, it, it's, it's not a very it's not a very pretty picture. The, the sort of standard view of the American Revolution is that it was pretty much nonviolent in terms of uh the local situation uh, didn't have, uh, we obviously didn't have all of the beheadings of the French Revolution or, or mass slaughters of the Russian Revolution and so forth, but there was plenty of, of, uh, plenty of violence and intimidation that was, um, that was in play. And so they basically shut down the opposition. So it didn't matter that a third of the people were against it because they were uh, intimidated or or kept from allowed being allowed to make the argument, um, and so some of them, as I said, to circle back around, some of them stayed in America afterwards, and and eventually the community sort of healed, um, but a lot of them left the country, mostly to Canada. So the community heals; it comes together again around a new kind of social or political centre. But at the heart of that political centre is the, the new set of ideas that have been established about how individual believers can relate to civil government. And it's, as one of your loyalist clergy points out, 
it's it's a very critical relationship that gets established through that doctrine, isn't it? It's one in which the possibility of resistance is always going to be there. And it does create this quite profound instability at the heart of the American political experiment. Yeah, at least potentially. Um, you know, that was always the argument uh, that was made against John Locke, uh, that that uh, his, his idea of a right of resistance uh, inherently puts in a, a danger of instability. Um, and one can look at that, I think, uh, different ways. One can say, well, clearly that's not true uh, because America now has been has been functioning and, and indeed thriving for uh, 240 years, roughly, uh, and 230 years. And um, so clearly the, the notion of instability is not really a problem. Or one can say, well, but just 50 or uh, what, 70, 75 years into the American uh, establishment, you have a civil war um, that, that split the country and, and caused Americans to kill each other at the rate of 600,000 people. Well, Greg, you've given us a lot to think about today, and you've written this really marvelous book, God Against the Revolution, The Lawyer's Clergy's Case Against the American Revolution, just published by Kansas. Uh, in 2018. We've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Uh, I'd like you to, I'd like to, but I haven't decided. <laughs> I'm in between uh, projects. I've got several ideas, but none of them are really fixed. And uh, I had a great idea. I was going to do a sort of American version, Americanized version of the Federalist Papers and translating, uh, as I tell my students, that Federalist Papers were written in a foreign language to them. It's written in English. <laughs> uh, and I, I was going to translate it into sort of modern language, but then I discovered other people have already done that. So um, I don't know. I, I, I'm uh, right now I'm just kind of uh, in between projects and I don't really know the direction I'm going next. Well, we'll be following it with interest wherever you go, Craig. Thanks very much for your time today, and take care. Thank you, I appreciate it. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Mm-hmm.